0: Welcome, you guys welcome to our uh series refuge in repentance we are on uh week four now i think of this series and it's been a wonderful series where we have gone through and answered some questions we've looked at the scriptures um looked at the word of god uh and asked some questions of god with regards to this teaching or this doctrine of repentance and so i want to thank you guys for joining us uh if you are watching us on our youtube channel uh, it is so good to have you with us. Um, let me just begin uh, quickly uh, by jumping right into our series, jumping right into uh, uh, the teaching today. Uh, we are looking at in this series, Refuge and Repentance, today we're looking at the purpose of repentance. So we looked at uh, in the following, in the uh, weeks ahead or the weeks prior, we looked at what repentance was, uh, who causes or what causes repentance, and now we're looking at Uh, the prod or the purpose of repentance what is the purpose of it and if you were to compile a list of words uh, that are uh, that are you know you know well used words in in the church today if you were to kind of survey the church and and get a sense of uh, a lot of words that are popular right now in in the language of the church (laughs) you would arrive at a lot of different words in fact you would arrive at a lot of words that actually start with the letter R. You know, one of those words would be uh, revival. Revival is such a huge buzzword right now. It seems like everywhere you turn, uh, someone is talking about uh, revival, right? That, that it almost seems as if you say it enough times that you'll almost convince the people that you're saying saying it to that it's actually happening. It's, it, it's, it's being used at such a rate of, of um, repetitiveness that, It almost seems as though it's being contrived and being engineered, but revival is such a huge word right now in the church. Uh, Restoring is another one. Uh, Reclaiming. Uh, Revelation, as far as new revelation, that God has revealed this to me. God is revealing something new to me. Uh, Realm, the idea of uh, living in a spiritual realm and, and growing and ascending to higher spiritual realms or moving into new realms with God. Uh, with regards to your spiritual life. There's so many R words that are being tossed about uh, in the church today. But here's the funny thing is is that there is very little emphasis on one of these R words that we find in Scripture so often. And it was at the very core of Jesus's ministry and teaching. Uh, This word that we have failed to use, failed to teach on, failed to exalt in our churches is this word, our word, repentance. There's little emphasis on the discipline of this word. There's little emphasis on the teaching of this concept. There's a little emphasis on the command of repentance in the church. It seems there is a hesitation to teach it. There is a reluctance in modeling it. And there is an ambivalence to the profound effects of it. There are no sermons to herald it. There are no songs to sing of it. There are no books to write about it. But why? Why is this? We have established from the very beginning of this series that repentance is at the very heart and at the very essence of Christ's message and ministry. And so if this is at the very center and theme of of Christ's ministry and his work on the earth, should it not be uh, in the spotlight, should it not be at the center of the very message that the church is proclaiming to the world? And yet this this teaching, this concept, this idea, this discipline has been completely sidelined by many in the evangelical church. It has been replaced with something much different. In fact, this is what Jesus says about repentance. This is how we know that it is at the very center and core of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, 15, it says, The time is fulfilled. This is Jesus speaking. These are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when it comes to his ministry. This is, for Mark, how he inaugurates his ministry. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's the next thing coming. It is close. It is so close that it is almost close enough where you can reach out and grasp it. It is at hand. It is imminent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in what? Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. This is the very core and center of the church's mandate, of the church's uh, message, of the church's proclamation. It is repent and believe in the gospel. Mark six twelve. this is what Jesus says to his disciples when he sends them out. He says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is the, the substance. This is of first importance for the disciples was to proclaim the message repentance and yet it has been lost in the church. It has been divorced from most of church life. It has been in many ways sidelined. It has been in many ways marginalized today. But repentance is not only the precursor of faith or the precursor to faith but it is the mark of a continual life of obedience to christ it's not just something that 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 is coupled with faith uh, in order to believe and to receive everything that jesus has done for us but it is a marker of a life lived in obedience to christ look in revelation chapter 3 verse 3 to the church in sardis he says remember then what you have received and heard keep it and repent it makes us think of when Paul uh, talked about uh, the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the beginning of that chapter, he says, stand fast, stand in what you have received. Believe and continue to believe in obedience by faith in what you have received. What is it that you have received? The good news of Christ and Christ crucified, Christ dying, coming to the earth, dying, being buried and rising again for the forgiveness of our sins. And so in Sardis, uh, there was this sense that they had abandoned this, that they had abandoned the gospel, that they had abandoned the teachings of grace and forgiveness and redemption and peace and adoption through Christ. And it is these things that Jesus reminds them of, the, the simplicity, the foundation of the gospel. He says, come back to this, repent and come back to what you have received and have heard that is my message and then in revelation 2 5 another uh, letter to the church in Ephesus, he says this but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first remember therefore from where you have fallen remember the the heights to which you ascended to in me but remember now, where you have fallen, where it is that you sit, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, unless you turn back to me. So it's not just a precursor to faith, but repentance is the mark of an ongoing life of obedience in the life of a Christian, in the life of the church. And it is vital that we make sure that this idea and teaching of repentance is continually on our lips as we herald and proclaim the gospel, that the gospel is not just for people who don't know Christ to hear, but the gospel must be something that the church is reminded of constantly so that we understand and we can set our gaze upon the grace of Christ every day for what he's done on our behalf that we are in communion and reconciled to God the Father for one reason, because Christ's righteousness has been given to us by faith. And that is the message we have for the world, and it is the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that the church must be about. It must be of first importance. It must be critical and vital. It must be something that we would hold dearly and behold on our very lips so that the people who would come in to hear the message of Christ would understand their position before God and how it changes as they put their faith in Christ. That in Christ they are no longer condemned for their sin but accepted freely by the grace of Christ dying for them. So why has the church become so inept at preaching this doctrine of repentance? Why has the church been, become so embarrassed to preach this? Why has it been uh, you know, obligated to the very periphery of the church? Why has the church gone to great lengths to depreciate its worth? Why has the church been willingly complicit in stripping the gospel of its transforming power by refusing to emphasize this dazzling truth of Christ-saturated repentance. Why has that happened? Well, I have a theory, and I will say that this is just based on my observation, but I believe it's simple. I believe it's simple the reason why this has happened and why uh, many parts of the evangelical church have abandoned this. And do not focus on this, and, and quite frankly, do not focus on the offensive nature of the gospel. It is because the church wants to be loved by the world. The church, in many ways, has adopted postmodern mantras. It has championed the philosophies of the culture. It has embraced worldly slogans. The church lusts after self-help principles, man-centered morals, and seeks the approval of the world by convincing them that Jesus is the vehicle to acquire worldly wealth and success. That is what is happening in many parts of the evangelical church right now. We are addicted to the latest buzzwords, and catchphrases, high-sounding ideologies, empty, shallow teachings, and the inevitable results is a church that has divorced itself from the deep, rich, life-giving, transformative and often difficult teachings of Christ found in his word. That is where we stand. That is a survey and a synopsis of many hearts of the evangelical church. If the church wants to be loved by the world, it cannot preach a message of repentance because the world tells us that we are perfect just the way we are. But repentance demands change. You cannot preach the gospel if you want to be loved by the culture because the culture tells us that God accepts us just the way we are. But the Gospel says that God accepts all those who will come to him on the grounds of Christ's sacrificial, atoning death on our behalf. You can't preach repentance if you want to be loved by the world. God does not see us as us. God does not see us as us, but as Christ. The world says we are inherently good. The Gospel says, God alone is good, and our righteousness is granted to us by faith in Christ. The world says you are enough. The Gospel says that Christ is enough, and that you cannot approach God on your own merit, but only through faith in Christ. The world says you are worth your self-love. The gospel says that in the end, people will be lovers of self. And it is not our worth, but the intrinsic, incalculable love of God that motivates him to save us. Therefore, ascribing the worth of his love to us. Truth is, we are so busy trying to get the world to love us to accept us that we have forgotten to love the world by presenting them with the gospel of Christ the simple message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin It is the only message that saves. It is the only way to life everlasting. It is the only way to know joy now. It is the only way to know peace now. It is the only way to know restoration now in the Father by His grace through faith in Christ and His death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. It is the only way to God through Christ, through the cross, through faith and repentance. For the forgiveness of our sin. Therefore, repentance has been abandoned. Repentance is not what the world wants to hear. And so we don't tell them that. And so the church, seeking acceptance from the culture, is giving them what it wants. It is giving them smooth-talking ego-stroking, self-esteem raising, high-sounding philosophies that tickle the ears, which keeps the world coming back for more. The world loves the church because the church is constantly fixated on what God thinks about us and leaves little space to consider by the word of God, what God thinks about himself. All the while, people are starving for truth, yet they do not even know it. All the while, people cannot grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, found in the truth of Christ, because it is not presented to them. Holiness, righteousness, and humility have been abandoned for self-assurance, self-confidence, self-help, and success. This grim reality presents grave consequences as the church has stifled itself of the truth. It has choked out the gospel of Christ and it has rendered itself incapable of preaching repentance in order to attract the world. (coughs) That is not something that we will do here. I will not compromise the truth. I will not round the edges of the truth. I will not alter it or adorn it to make it seem more acceptable or more palatable, more convincing and more persuasive. So as we continue in this series, Refuge in Repentance, I want to bring our gaze and focus our attention on the questions that we have asked of the text, the questions that we have asked of the Word of God with regards to this teaching and this doctrine. The first one is this. We talked about what is repentance. And we talked about uh, simply being that repentance is not simply an attempt at behavior modification or a simple apology. It is not skin deep, you know, uh, Sorrys. It is not, you know, um, it is not remorse that is short-lived, but true biblical repentance, Christ-centered repentance, heralds the necessity of deep remorse. It demands sincere regret of a particular behavior, lifestyle, or attitude. Christ-centered repentance is the product of a ruptured heart, a, a torn heart, a split Open heart, an exposed heart that understands the severe breach that our sin has on the holiness of God. It is we are breached, we are torn, uh, we are set apart. We have been, we have been, um, we have been separated from the holiness of God, from the from the favor of God, from the goodness of God by our sin. And It is this reality that should cause the heart of every believer to be sincere and contrite in their repentance in their turning away from their sin and to christ the second question that we asked ourselves not only what is repentance, it is important to define exactly what it is and what it isn't, but also we looked at what causes it, or who causes repentance, and we looked at First John chapter 1 and we looked at how it is the light of Christ that shines deep within the caverns of our heart that brings about repentance. It is the, the bright light of Christ shining in our hearts, dispelling darkness. From our soul and we talked about John telling us that if we're walking in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. The idea is, is that as we walk in the light and the truth of Christ, that Christ's light shining in us and through us and out from us, that same light is exposing the darkness of our soul, exposing our sin, so that we can become aware of it and, and deal with it and and turn from it. That <coughs> the very the very evidence of a Christian walking in the light of Christ is recognizing sin and repenting from it. So many teachings out there tell us that as we walk in the light of Christ that we can be completely free of sin. And John is saying just the opposite. John is saying that if you're walking in the light of Christ, you know and are aware of your sin so you can turn. But if you refuse to admit your sin, you lie to yourself, you deceive yourself, and you call God a liar. So the idea that Christ and God are the causes of our repentance is biblically found right there in 1 John chapter 1. We also looked at uh 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul talks about uh, repentance being initiated by a godly grief, that God initiates repentance through grief uh, over our sin, that, that someone, a, a, a Christian who is regenerated in their heart, who has a transformed heart, a renewed mind, experiences grief that is initiated by God over their sin and causes them to repent. It is undeniable that true biblical Christ-centered repentance that glorifies Christ will be initiated by a godly grief. And we do not uh, possess any innate compulsion for repentance that is Christ-exalting. Yes, we can say sorry. Yes, we can apologize. The world does that all the time. But Paul talks about uh, a godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. In other words, that we are led into salvation. Salvation is being evidenced in our lives by our repentance from our sin caused by a godly grief. Worldly grief causes death, but godly grief causes life unto salvation. Worldly grief causes death because it seeks the acceptance of men. It has the wrong motives, but godly grief and godly repentance has Christ at the helm, Christ as the center, and will always lead to life. So today, the question before us is this, what is the purpose of repentance? And And we're gonna take this in two different um, episodes. What is the purpose of repentance? In other words, what is the aim of our repentance? What must we consider the goal of our contrition? What is it unto? And most importantly, what is the object of our remorse? Is it simply to make amends with someone? Is it simply to restore ourselves into the good graces of God? Is it simply to make our, ourselves feel better by owning our own failings? While I agree that these are all worthwhile you know, ventures, these are all virtuous sort of byproducts, ultimately, this is not the purpose of our repentance. It is not simply to reconcile with one another even though that is a good thing and it's a byproduct of repentance it is not at the very center of our purpose the purpose of repentance is for one thing for one aim for one goal the purpose of repentance is to see and to savor and to rejoice in the Lordship of Christ over our lives it is the Lordship of Christ that becomes the aim. It is the authority of Christ. It is the rule of Christ in us that becomes the aim and the goal of our repentance. It is the evidence of Christ reigning in us that is the purpose of repentance. I want us to take a look here at Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. And we see here sort of a... uh, We see here sort of a, a... a display of, of Christ's lordship. We see the lordship of Christ uh, coming out of Christ's lowliness and humiliation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. I want to read it here for a moment. I want to talk about how it is that we see the lordship of Christ in this passage and, and how we are to view his lordship in the light of his lowliness as he comes to the earth and how it is that his lordship becomes the very purpose and goal and aim of our lives in repentance. We'll start in verse uh, five here. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, The very lowliness of Christ and Christ's humiliation and being birthed out of that lowliness, that that, that humiliation of Christ condescending to the earth is the exaltation of Christ in his supreme lordship. Let's take this for a moment verse by verse and understand how it is that Christ comes and is humiliated and comes to be the lowliest of the low. Think about this for a moment. At the beginning here, verse six, this is what it says that, He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This idea of being in the form of God, this Greek word, morphe, really speaks to this idea that Christ was equal with God in nature. That in his essence, he was fully God, God, that he was truly incarnate. That he was fully God, truly God, truly man. And that there was never a point in time when he was never not truly incarnate. God, But he took on, in his divine nature, a uh, human nature and added on to that a uh, human nature. But God, or Christ, in every way, whether uh, ascended in heaven before he comes to the earth, while he's on the earth, when he dies, when he ascends back uh, to his throne and is exalted back to his lordship, he is always, truly, never less than God. And it says that he was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul is saying here is that he's reinforcing this idea that Christ was God because he uses this word equality. He did not count his equality, which means the same as, no difference. He did not count his equality with God something to be grasped. This idea of grasping his equality with God was, takes on this, this notion of, of, of eagerly claimed, or robbery almost, plunder, to, to, to assume a valuable possession. And, and what Paul is saying here is, is that in the humiliation of Christ, it would have been considered robbery for Christ to assume what was rightfully his, In his humiliation on the earth, that in his lowliness, the perfect expression of his lowliness was to not count himself equal with God. Because he came as a man, but as God. And so part of taking on that human nature required his humiliation. As he condescends, it requires the ultimate lowliness as the servant. So he did not count equality with God, but then he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This idea of emptying is this word kenosis or kanao in the Greek. And it is essentially not Christ emptying himself of his divinity as many want to teach. Many want to just convince the church that Christ came as a man and did everything as a man, so that we can also do everything as men. he did he was the perfect model and so everything that Christ did we can do because he did it as a man but he did not he did everything as the God man as fully God fully man but he emptied himself not of his divinity but he made no use of his advantages he made no use of his privileges he made no use of his rights and he veiled his glory for all to see Think about this for a moment, he deserved everything, everything came from him, Christ made everything and through him all things are made and to him are all things made and for him are all things made. But Christ comes and receives nothing of any wealth, of any possession, of any material uh, value at all. He comes to the earth, has to borrow a manger for his birth he has to borrow a boat to preach in. He has to borrow a place to lay his head every night, oftentimes sleeping on the Mount of Olives. He has to borrow a donkey to, to ride in as the King of Israel. He has to borrow a grave to be buried. He borrowed everything. Even though everything was his, He borrowed it. All. he borrowed it all. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. How is it that he emptied himself? He humiliated himself willingly by taking the form of a servant. That he served God and was completely obedient to the Father. And that in every way, in some way, somehow, uh, he abandoned his own will for the Father's will and he abandoned his own personal relationship that he had with the Father in all of his glory in the heavens for a lowly place as a man on the earth. A man of no reputation, of no value, a man that no one considered to be of any importance. This is the lowliness and the humiliation of Christ. He takes... The form of a servant, this idea of form is this idea in the Greek of, of, a, of a schema or an outward appearance. He takes the form of a servant, or sorry, he takes the form of a servant and he is in every way a servant in essence, but being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death. So we, we see the ever increasing uh, descent into his lowliness. Not only did he come as a man, uh, as, as God uh, in the form of a man, that he took on the likeness of men in the sense he was in every way a man, and in every way experienced temptation, in every way experienced the fall of, of humanity in his, his emotions and in his sadness and in his suffering yet without sin and without without ever committing sin, but was tempted in every way. He took the form of a man, the, the likeness of a man, and to everyone, his appearance was as a man. His schema, his outward appearance was as a man. As In his essence, in his form, in his morphe, he was essentially God, and he was fully man and truly man. But to the outside appearance, everyone saw him as simply a man they didn't see him as God and they didn't even treat him like a man but they treated him lower than a man they treated him like a common criminal like the lowest of the low this is the humiliation of Christ that we see before his exalted lordship and it is this lordship that becomes the purpose and aim and goal of our repentance Verse 9 to 11 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see this humiliation continue to descend and to descend to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest levels. He is God and comes as a man, which is low. He comes not only as a man, but as a servant, even lower to serve God. He comes even lower by dying, that God it, it dies. That's even lower, he suffers suffers the humiliation of death, even though uh, he could, with one breath of his mouth, continually wipe out everything that was happening. He sent legions of angels to take care of every enemy, but yet he humbles himself, humiliates himself, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, and he comes low, he comes lowest. descends to the very lowest depths of humiliation as he condescends to the earth. And it is at this very moment where Christ descends, Christ becomes exalted, exalted to the very place that he had before he came, to his lordship. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him Because of his humiliation, because of his obedience, God the Father exalts him to the very highest place. Exalts him and bestows upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that day is coming for everybody. That the Lordship of Christ is his right to possess all authority to behold all glory, to execute his supreme will over every living thing. This is the Lordship of Christ. And make no mistake that the name was mocked, the name that was reviled, the name that was rejected, the name that was humiliated, the man that no one recognized, the name that no one and the person that no one esteemed or honored, Or recognized as God that very name that very person is coming again and it is the name in which all supreme authority undeniable sovereignty and matchless power is ascribed to Jesus said in John chapter 17 Lord return to me and allow me to return to receive the glory to which I had before I came and that is exactly what the Father does. And now it is Jesus Christ who's reigning as Lord over everything. Even right now as we speak, nothing happens outside of the purview of Christ's sovereignty. Nothing punctures the sovereignty of Christ in anything that happens on the earth. Every king has his power from Christ. Every government has his rule from Christ. Every politician gets its authority from Christ. It is only because Christ has allowed it. And there's coming a time where this lordship that we have, that we recognize, that we come under, everyone will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every government will bow to the lordship of Christ. When when he comes... We're not gonna bow to our political leaders. We're not gonna bow to a government. We're not gonna bow to our bosses. We're not gonna bow to anyone that is in power and responsibility over us. We're not gonna bow to our spouses. We're not gonna bow to anyone. We're not gonna confess any other name. We're not gonna confess the name of our favorite sports team. We're not gonna confess the name of of our favorite band. We're not gonna confess any other name accept the name of Christ, and so won't everybody. For the Christian who delights in repentance, this future lordship that is coming that we see in Philippians 2 is bursting forth now as his undeniable and inescapable lordship is not a future promise, but a present-day reality for us. For us, his lordship is, is reigning now and obedience becomes the only proper response to his authority to his lordship to his humiliation that he suffered for our saving when repentance assumes its rightful place in the life of a believer it boldly brags of a new master in charge no longer are we slaves to our sin, but slaves to righteousness because Christ has given us his righteousness through his death and our faith in him. Our flesh no longer determines the dominant direction of our lives, but we walk in the way of virtuous living under the umbrella of the Christ's lordship and his authority over us. And we evidence that reality through repentance unto his lordship. When repentance reigns, rebellion is ruined. When repentance rules, it boasts of a new governor in the mansion, a new commander leading the army, a new superior to answer to, a new lord of our lives. When the heart delights in repentance, when the soul yearns for a new direction, when the creature beholds, its dazzling, lovely, and stunning effects. It is then that Christ becomes Lord. Show me a woman or a man who wholeheartedly considers the worth of repentance to be of inestimable value. I will show you someone who has subjected themselves to the Lordship of Christ. Repentance, mine, yours, all of ours, Is a gift given to us, a gift of incalculable worth whose purchase demands the highest price to be acquired. It took the precious blood of Christ at the cross to afford our repentance, and now that grace permeated repentance shall be the evidence of Christ's lordship over each believer whose singular desire is to live for Christ. So that is what we see as the purpose of our repentance. It is the Lordship of Christ. It is Christ exalted. It is Christ having his way. It is a new direction. It is our attention to Christ and our obedience by faith in him. And it is our understanding and awareness of his authority and lordship, his rule and his reign over us as he regenerates our mind, regenerates our hearts, renews our mind. It is this that becomes the the aim, the goal, the purpose of repentance. It is his lordship that we love. It is his lordship that we desire. It is the authority of who he is over us that he guides and directs every step That he gives us confidence in the things that he's accomplished for us. And that he leads us into the paths of righteousness and holiness. And he does that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, wrought and evidenced by the practice of repentance in the life of a believer. And that is the purpose of repentance. So I want to thank you guys for joining us this week for this uh, part, this episode of our series. Uh, Refuge in Repentance. Uh, Join us next week uh, as we begin to talk about what the product of repentance is. In, In other words, what is produced by a life of repentance. So take care, guys. We'll see you next time.